We can give a perfectly sound biological account of why there should be pain and pain behavior. What we want is a similarly anchored account of why there should be hilarity and laughter. I wrote that more than 20 years ago and more or less promised to provide that account in that book. When I thought about it good and hard and did some reading, I was as stumped as any Neanderthal could be. I, <laughs> I, it was a, an embarrassment. I just gave up. And then along came Matthew Hurley. This is a perfect illustration of what Steve Mythen was just telling you about the extended mind. Matthew is a student of mine who showed up, and he wanted to do a theory of humor. And I said, much too hard, much too hard, do something else. No, he would not be dissuaded. And this resulted in the Hurley model of humor in the book that we uh, published together just a, a year or so ago, the paperback's just out, Inside Jokes Using Humor to Reverse Engineer the Mind. There's three authors. Reg Adams is the third, a young psychologist, then at Tufts, now at Penn State. So this is a product of, an, of the extended mind, to be sure. Now, humor theories have been around <laughs> for a long time. They go back to Aristotle and Hobbes and Kant and Darwin and Schopenhauer and Bergson and Freud and Minsky and Kirstler and the Three Stooges. <laughs> Lots of humor theories. You probably have a humor theory of your own. And it's probably right about some little fraction of the things that we find funny. Everybody, I find, has a theory of humor. There's all these theories. Let's just briefly look at some of the earlier theories. Hobbes is famous for his superiority theory. Sudden glory arising from some conception of eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmity in others. Well, it rings a bell. It rings a bell. You can see how that could be true of a lot of humor, but not all. It doesn't explain puns, for instance. I want to also concentrate on, as Hobbes did, on sudden glory, which gives us another uh, genus of humor theories, the surprise theories. Uh, here's an example. <laughs> yes. Thank you for laughing. You're improving my point. This is a little experiment that I wanted to run. Now we get a little bit turgid and intellectual. We go to Kant, talking about incongruity resolution theories, sudden transformation of a strained expectation into nothing. Well, there's a lot of point to that, and other people followed through. Schopenhauer had a variant on the Kantian theory. Then we have uh, Marvin Minsky's faulty logic, Theories, this is sort of naughty thinking. Then there's the mechanical theory of Henri Bergson. So we have all these different, and release theories of Freud. And you see, they're all really quite different. And they all get at one aspect or another of humor. But they don't unify. What we have here is a bunch of blind wise men and an elephant. And everybody's right about something, and nobody sees the whole elephant. Well, Matthew set out to do the whole elephant. And his theory at first, uh, I didn't buy it. In fact, his first draft, I just dismissed. I said, no, 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 this is wrong. This can't possibly be right. And in fact, my initial complete uh, 
incredulity and refusal to take it seriously, in the end, I decided it was an important datum. That helped to explain why nobody got there before us. Because it's initially counterintuitive and it's hard, it's hard to take seriously until you work it out. Thank goodness Matthew said, no, I just haven't said it right, Professor Dennett. You wait, you wait, I'll get it. You'll see. And I did. And so I'm on board now for the Hurley model of humor, which is what I'm going to be talking about. It's a unification of the insights and it's grounded in evolution. And it also provides a sketch of a model of how the brain probably works. Think about the variety of humor. There's slapstick, there's puns and wordplay. Here's a few examples. I like this one. Email, the happy medium between male and female. <laughs> Not clever. The face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. <laughs> you don't need words. There's cartoons, stimulus response, stimulus response. Don't you ever think? <laughs> think how different comedies can be. We have uh, the importance of being earnest. We have Seinfeld. Both very funny, very different. Then there's the role of context. What do all these have in common? Well, obviously, they make us laugh. That's trivial. How? Why? Why, why is humor entertaining? Why is it rewarding? Well, they tickle our funny bone. Okay, let's just take that seriously and ask what a funny bone is. And why do, we, why do we have a funny bone? That's the evolutionary question. Why do we have a funny bone that can be tickled? Well, in case you wonder, yes, we do have a funny bone. I'll show you where it is here. Let's see. Yeah. Where you see, see this sort of dog here? And there, there's a bone right there. <laughs> Obviously, that's not serious. I hope you realize that. <laughs> Humor and laughter, the relationship between them is actually not straightforward. Rama here has a very nice account of laughter, which we help ourselves to and adjust a little bit. Uh, it's different from humor. Between a humorous input and laughing output, there's, there's an intervening variable of sorts which we might as well call mirth. And we can experience mirth without laughing and laugh without experiencing mirth. That's just true. So mirth is actually a slightly better dependent variable than laughter, if we, can, if we can get it, if we ask people whether they find something funny. So the question is, why does mirth exist at all? We've got to start with that. Mirth is, in fact, highly revealing about cognitive states and processes. That's why the subtitle of our book is Using Humor to Reverse Engineer the Mind, because I think we can learn a lot about the computational architecture and economies of the mind by understanding how mirth plays a role in it. So the funny bone, we claim, is a hardwired reward system that evolved by natural selection to ensure that a certain costly job gets done. And then, once we had this organ, as if you like, 
that evolved to do this costly job. Then it's been prospected for millennia by comedians who create supernormal stimuli of comedy. So what comedy is, what humor is, is supernormal stimuli culturally evolved and transmitted for overstimulating the funny bone. Now, we know what sweet is for. It rewards us for choosing high-energy, sugar-rich food. We're wired up to find sugar-rich foods relatively irresistible, and it's an innate preference. We know what sexy is for. It rewards us for the time and effort spent mating. We wouldn't do it if there wasn't a reward system, and that would be the end of us. We know what cute is for. It rewards us for nurturing and protecting our young. And it's wired right into us. Now, what is funny for? What is funny for? The three previous examples, we can see there's a, there's a deep evolutionary need that is met by having a reward system tuned to them. Now we need to know what funny is for. And the Hurley model is an attempt to explain this, humor and laughter in terms of the evolutionary origins, the cognitive computational problem that our funny bones solve, and then the cultural elaboration of the underlying mechanism. Here is a little verse to give you the sense of our theory, and I'll just give it to you in a trice. There was an old woman who lived in her shoes. She had so many children she didn't know what to do. Their rooms were piled high with the playthings of boys, comic books, fishing rods, discarded toys, model planes, model trains, the dirt that goes with them, and a huge piles of laundry that flowed out to the kitchen. And try as she may to get them to sweep. She'd scold them and threaten, implore them and weep. She'd give them dust cloths, vacuums and brooms. She just could not get them to clean up their rooms. So she gave them some broth without any bread, whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Then she had a bright idea. Parallel to evolution's bright idea, this is what she did. First, she put Swiffer soles on their slippers and hid candy all around in their rooms. And sure enough, in no time at all, they found all the candy, rewarding them for cleaning up their rooms, which looked like the guest room at Martha Stewart's by the time they were through. That's the rationale for the evolutionary account that we're giving, that there is a costly garbage collection and cleanup and reordering job that has to be done and that the brain has to solve the problem. The brain's job, as we all know, is to produce future. And this is time-pressured, real-time heuristic search. Everything that's happening right now, all through the day, it's coming in like a fire hose, and you've got to sort it out and interpret it on the fly and make sense of it. It's an unsupervised process where you ignore some things and take other things seriously. It's approximating, it's oversimplifying, you're jumping to conclusions all the time. And what happens is that mistaken inferences creep in surreptitiously without your noticing them. Those are the, those are, those, that's the garbage that has to be cleaned up. If those bugs aren't caught and debugged, data integrity, as a computer scientist would say, is it threatened? Now, debugging, as every computer scientist knows, is costly, resource-consuming, attention-demanding job. 
The solution is the joy of debugging. Evolution has to bribe the brain to get the job done. Now, to take this idea seriously, you have to discard lots of, I would hope now, obsolete models of the computational architecture of the brain. There isn't a boss and a hierarchical relationship. It's somewhat anarchic, there's tugs of war, it's deeply competitive, and the point is that one job that the brain had better do is cleaning up, and in order to get it to do that in competition with everything else the brain is doing, that cleaning up has to be rewarded. That's the only way anything ever gets done in the brain. No top-down control signals. Now, once the dirty job reward machinery is in place, it can be exploited by self-stimulation, which reminds me of masturbation. And there is a sense in which this is the parallel for this reward system of masturbation for the libido. But then it can be harnessed for many further social purposes. Those are the purposes outlined in all those other theories of humor. Superiority enhancement, allegiance probing, uh, showing off to the opposite sex. There's all these very good uses of humor, but they all presuppose the existence of this reward system, and that's what has to be explained first. So supernormal stimuli, I think probably everybody here knows about Tinbergen and supernormal stimuli. He noticed that uh, gull chicks uh, uh, peck at the, at the bright orange spot on the, on the mother gull's beak, and that uh, provokes her to regurgitate food. And he had the very clever idea of coming up with just wands that didn't look at all like a gull's head, but with bigger and brighter orange spots on them, and sure enough, the chicks pecked even harder and faster and more often at those, super normal stimuli. Now, the main reason, I would say, just to telescope a lot of complexity, the main reason that humans have humor and, say, gulls don't, is they don't have any gull Tinbergens to develop supernormal stimuli. That, uh, for reasons that uh, uh, Steve Mythen was talking about in the last talk, that really depends on extended mind, culture, language, and the rest. So humor consists of supernormal stimuli designed by both unwitting cultural evolution and individual intelligent designers. There's every comedians. There's the R&D for creating these supernormal stimuli includes both pure Darwinian cultural evolution uh, where, where, where there, nobody understands why this is good, but they just laugh, and so it happens, and it gets replicated. And also, of course, uh, people actually really clever, intelligent designers of humor, comedians, uh, uh, authors of comedies, and the rest. All designed to overstimulate the debugging reward machinery, and we love it. It's a billion-dollar-plus industry. Now, how good is that theory? Well, we offer a whole theory. We say, if you don't like it, come up with a better one. We're going to show you how it handles the phenomenology of humor, meaning all the varieties of humor, the things that humor consists of. First of all, you have to come to understand that humor is not an intrinsic property. It is a Lockean secondary quality like red. It depends on the disposition in the observer. Consider the following idea. First it was sweetness, and then we evolved 
to like sweetness. No, no. First there was glucose, first there was sugar. But sweetness evolved with our liking it. They are indissoluble, they, have, they go together. And the same thing has got to be true of humor. Theorizing about humor without studying the brain is like theorizing about sweetness by looking very carefully at the structure of glucose. That's not going to tell you what sweetness is. That's not going to tell you what sweetness is. And most theories of humor in the past have intensely studied funny texts, funny pictures, and so forth, without thinking carefully about what must be going on in the brains of the observers uh, 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 appreciating that humor. Well, one of the things we know about humor is that order is important. This is part of the phenomenology. Man walks up to a hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything. Oh, and the man is a Buddhist. Mm, no, get that out of order. Why is order important? That's one of the things you have to explain. Timing is important. I can't resist telling a story about my late great friend, John McCarthy, who at a meeting not unlike this, first speaker gets up and starts talking. Somebody at the back of the room yells, louder. So the fellow begins speaking louder, and John yells, funnier. (laughs) You got to get the timing right, and then it's a killer. This cartoon, in a way, was the inspiration for, for Matthew Hurley's model. He began to notice that in many languages, there's a word like funny in English, which has two meanings, nicely exemplified here. There's funny, uh uh-oh, what's that funny smell? What's that funny noise? And then there's funny, ha-ha. And it turns out that's true in a lot of languages. We've got a good dozen that there's a term like this. And he decided that was actually an important clue. And the, the clue really is, that humor always begins with a bit of a mistake. It always begins with a tiny uh-oh, which is then resolved almost immediately into, oh, never mind, it's okay. And it's this down-up, starting off with a little bit of negativity, a little down, followed by a little bit of up. The same point's been made in a wonderful book by David Huron called Sweet Anticipation about music. Now, Huron's book is about reverse engineering the mind using music as a probe, Ours is about using humor as a probe. As he says, pleasure is increased when a positive response follows a negative response. While surprise is biologically bad, surprise nevertheless plays a pivotal role in human emotional experience. Surprise acts as an emotional amplifier. We call this the Huron trampoline. We sometimes intentionally use this amplifier to boost positive emotions. That's one of the keys to our model. Covert entry is very important in humor. The mental spaces filling up with all this furniture as life goes on, easily cluttered up and they get easily contaminated. And what happens is that mistaken premises enter without notice, they enter covertly. And this is important to to achieve the, the, the groundwork for making something funny. I'll give you uh, an observation which just makes this point in space. If there is a joke that in order to understand it, there is some fact you have to know, 
And you want to tell a joke to somebody who doesn't know that fact. And you tell them the fact first. Then you tell them the joke. No humor at all. No humor at all. Because the, the fact entered not by covert entry, but entered very publicly. If, if the facts that the joke depends on aren't common knowledge so that you don't have to mention them, so that they will automatically get generated in this helter-skelter mental space furnishing, uh, you're not going to have humor. That's, of course, also the main reason why humor doesn't travel all that well, how it often depends on very small groups of people who happen to share the same basic tacit understanding. Now, this is going to be disappointing, but I can't in 20 minutes do better than this. Just to let you know, we really do have a fairly clear, crisp, and, uh, as it were, uh, refutable model. So, first of all, we distinguish between first-person humor, which is the root, basic humor, and then there's the rest of humor. So first-person or proto-humor occurs when, one, an active element in a mental space that has covertly entered that space and is taken to be true within that space is diagnosed to be false in that space, simply in the sense that it is the loser in an epistemic reconciliation process, and then trivially, the discovery is not accompanied by any strong negative emotional balance. Balance. If all that is true, you have an instance, and you will always, according to this model, have an instance of of proto-humor. Now, higher-order humor is proto-humor plus X, giving you the rest of humor. What's X? It's my old friend, the intentional stance. It's our involuntary capacity disposition to treat other beings as minds that have beliefs and desires and to involuntarily actually interpret them uh, as having minds rather like ours. In humor, the first person's perspective on one's own bugs, that's the basic mechanism. If that first person humor didn't exist, humor wouldn't exist, so we claim. The intentional stance then permits and obliges us to appreciate the bugs of others, to understand the pompous man slipping on the banana peel and all the rest. And this is where the superiority effects, the in-group, out-group effects, the mechanical effects of Bergson, they all come in in the account of second-order humor, higher-order humor. Uh, but they all need first-order humor to explain why there's a reward system in the first place. So now a summary. False assumptions covertly entered into our mental spaces carry with them an automatic pleasure amplifier that kicks in when our ongoing quest for anticipation discovers and promptly resolves conflicts in those assumptions. This intensified reward, which probably only human beings experience, has then become an autonomous target, attracting efforts to design ever more potent and effective stimuli to obtain the reward. Humor, then, is an integral part of the evolved processes for maintaining data integrity in our world knowledge representations. Now, if I had a little more time, I would go on and walk through the model in slow motion showing how some jokes work and how you can turn them off by changing one condition or another, but that will just have to wait for another time. Thank you very much for your attention. (laughs) 